James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. We've been away from James for some weeks now, and we return with only a few paragraphs remaining in the book. The one we consider this evening is, as the rest of James, a lesson in wisdom. Proverbs, the Old Testament most elaborate presentation of biblical wisdom, as you know, has things to say about patience or steadfastness and about reckoning with the future when making decisions in the present. Think of Proverbs' famous contrast between the ant and the sluggard. Also typical of the letter as a whole, James closely follows the teaching of the Lord Jesus, even in some cases virtually word for word, as we will see. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. <coughs> Once again, James addresses his readers as brothers, indicating, even emphasizing, that his subject is the perspective, the attitude believers ought to have as they live in this world in light of the events that are sure to come. The key terminology in the passage are forms of two different word groups, meaning patience, three times in verses 7 and 8 and once again in verse 10, and endure or persevere, twice in verses 10 and 11. In these verses, patience is the self-restraint that does not easily or hastily retaliate against a wrong, and steadfastness is the temper that does not easily succumb under suffering. Throughout the short passage, the motivation for such patience and steadfastness is the coming of the Lord in both salvation and in judgment. The word translated coming, the phrase the coming of the Lord, here is parousia, the term ordinarily used in the New Testament for the appearance of the Lord in glory at his second coming. The Latin term is adventus, or advent, or arrival. Parousia is used for the second coming by Jesus himself, by Paul, by Peter, by John. The term was currently in use among Greek speakers to describe official visits by a monarch to a city uh, within his dominions. It literally means presence. In its use in the New Testament, it's designed to make a definite contrast with the Lord's first coming, in which, as you know, he stole into the world unrecognized his glory hidden. It will not be so when he comes again. He will be present, and everyone will know it. The harvest is precious because it sustains our physical life as well as the living of the farmer. Just as Peter says, Christ's blood is precious because it makes spiritual life, eternal life, possible. But the farmer has to wait for the harvest. Wait for each stage of the growth of the grain 
before he can ever harvest the grain or the fruit. The period between the first appearance of the shoots and the harvest was only four months. But it was a time of hopeful waiting in a country so dependent as Palestine was on the timely arrival of the autumn and the spring rains, one soon after planting, the other when the crop was ripening. But the rains usually come, and the farmer expects them to come. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, the patience or steadfastness that James seems to have in mind is self-restraint. A willingness to wait on the Lord to avenge wrongs, to put things right. Whether the previous paragraph that dealt with injustices perpetrated by the rich and the powerful prompted these thoughts or not, what is being required is that we neither lose patience with God because he doesn't vindicate us or punish those who act against us as quickly as we think he should, nor with one another, taking upon ourselves, if only in our heart, the roles of judge and executioner. Blaming others is a form of impatience. And typically, we vent our frustration on those who are nearest to us, members of our family or our spiritual community. The thought is akin to what we find in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. So many of our hard words, whether we ever admit this to ourselves or not, are an expression of our own impatience. Our sense of our having been wronged and the Lord not coming to our aid as quickly as we feel he should. Twice now, James has emphasized the imminence, the nearness of the Lord's return. The coming of the Lord is at hand in verse 8. The judge is standing at the door in verse 9. And once again, we're reminded, as so often in the New Testament, that we too, even we Christians, must stand in the judgment. We must face the judgment of the Lord. That coming reckoning ought to have a powerful effect on our behavior, making us careful not to behave in a way the Lord will condemn when he brings our lives into judgment. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The prophets described both the first and the second comings of the Lord long before the first coming occurred. Indeed, it's not clear that they actually ever really understood that there would be two separate comings of the Lord with centuries to elapse between them. They had to wait for their prophecies to be fulfilled. What is more, virtually every prophet of whom we know anything from the narrative of the Old Testament suffered persecution on account of his message, unwelcome as it so often was 
to the authorities and to the people alike. But nevertheless, the prophets remained steadfast, hopeful, obedient, in the teeth of that opposition. Why? Because they knew what the future would bring. And we're to take courage from their example and practice patience as they did, waiting on the Lord to fulfill his word. This is not our subject this evening, but I hope you all appreciate what a world of comfort and encouragement there are in those words you have heard of the patience or the steadfastness of Job. The encouragement of this statement is that in a striking way, it reminds us that you and I can be people who are genuinely righteous, genuinely holy, genuinely godly, despite our glaring weaknesses, our failures, our embarrassing lapses. This is, I think, as profound a demonstration of the grace of God as is the forgiveness of our sins. James commends Job's patience or steadfastness. The word has both ideas. But if you've read Job, you know very well that there are many more chapters that describe Job's impatience than chapters that show him patient and steadfast. He griped his way through the book, complained bitterly against God, and grumbled against his friends, just as James tells us here not to do. Still, through all of that complaint, Job kept looking to God. He never lost his faith. The Puritan pastor Christopher Love shrewdly comments on James's remark here, he might just as well have said, ye have heard of the impatience of Job. After all, there's a great deal more of Job's impatience in the chapters that make up the book of Job than there are that contain the evidence of his patience. Christopher Love goes on, But God reckons his people not by what is bad in them, but by what is good in them. In other words, what was well done was mentioned to Job's praise. What was poorly done was not counted against him. Certainly didn't count as much in the evaluation of his life as did the faithful things that Job said and did. God will not quench the smoking flax or break the bruised reed. He will reward the good and largely overlook the bad. So, you remember at the beginning, Job spoke magnificently at, as his trial fell upon him. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <coughs> and even though he didn't maintain that state of mind and had to be severely rebuked at the end of the poem... It was that early state of mind for, Job, for which Job is remembered in heaven. Think of the Lord's remark in his high priestly prayer in John 17 about his disciples, that they were given to the Lord by his Father, and that they have obeyed your word. Really? Did those men really obey the word of the Lord? Well, yes, they did, despite all of their stumbles, of which there were plenty, as the Gospels make perfectly clear. Or think of Peter's remark that Lot was a righteous man who was distressed by the wicked lives of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah living among them day after day. 
Well, we tend to think, well, if he was so distressed, why didn't he get out of there? Or if he was so righteous, why didn't he find himself content with the hill country like his uncle Abraham? Why did he refuse to go to Sodom and Gomorrah in the first place, given their moral reputations? But Lot was a righteous man in the midst of wickedness, no matter that there were some very obvious lapses in his life of righteousness. Or, above all, think of Samson, listed among the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. What in the world is he doing there, that dolt, at least so we think? But he was a man of faith and of faithfulness, no matter his obvious and far too frequent spiritual failures. The Lord is indeed compassionate and merciful, and in nothing so much as this, that he considers the good things that we do as the chief evidence of our character and overlooks so much of the bad. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Verse 12 is the nearest thing to a direct citation of Jesus in the letter, a letter that more than any other book of the New Testament depends upon the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself. The but above all suggests that when we are tempted to lose heart or grumble, the one thing we must not do in such a moment is to begin using the Lord's name in vain. To use the name of the Almighty to punctuate our speech in the heat of the moment or by which to vent our unhappiness about the state of our affairs. To use his name in some explosive or irreverent oath. Thus far the word of God. Now before we can apply this text to our own life and our own circumstances, we have to clear up a problem. Twice in these few verses, James says that the coming of the Lord is near. Indeed, the judge is standing at the door. But how can this be? James wrote in the middle of the first century, nearly two millennia separate his time from ours. Two thousand years and counting is no one's idea of near. James has here laid his finger on a standing problem in the interpretation of the New Testament. You know there are many statements in the New Testament that describe the second coming as something that is going to happen very soon. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Peter said it. The author of the letter to the Hebrews said it. For in just a little while he was coming will come and will not delay. Virtually the last statement of the Lord in the New Testament and the last verse but one in the New Testament is this. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Liberal scholarship has for a long time known what to do with such statements. It maintains that Jesus and his disciples thought that the second coming would happen quite soon after Pentecost, and when it didn't, the New Testament had to be adjusted with the addition of parables about the landowner going on a long journey and his servants falling asleep because they waited for him so long, 
without his return, or statements about how the gospel had to be preached to the entire world before the end could come, and so on. That was never a very good argument, but it became an impossible argument when the dating of New Testament books was shoved into the middle of the first century as it has been over the last hundred years. It simply has not been, it was not long enough after all of those statements for the church to feel that they had to adjust the record. But in fact, this sort of dialectic, this juxtaposition of seemingly contrary ideas, in this case the imminence of the Lord's return and its delay, is so commonplace in the teaching of the Bible, it would be more of a surprise if we didn't find that kind of apparent contradiction here as well. We're told that the coming of the Lord is near. We're also told that it cannot happen until a great many other things, including some things that would have taken a great deal of time, have come to pass. We're told that the Lord is coming quickly, and we're told not to lose heart for watching for His return. And we're told that even the Lord Himself, that is Jesus the man, did not know the day or the hour of His return. How much more then must you and I live in ignorance of that day and hour? To be sure, we're given some instruction that can help at least somewhat in coming to terms with these two quite distinct messages about the timing of the second coming, messages that often sit side by side on the same page of the New Testament. You children know from the reading, your reading of the Narnia Chronicles that time is one thing on earth, it's another thing in Narnia. When the children slip through the magic wardrobe, they can engage in months, even years worth of great adventures in Narnia, but when they return to earth time, they find that time on earth has largely stood still. That's C.S. Lewis's imaginative way of expressing the truth that Peter gives us in 2 Peter 3. He's addressing the very question we're asking. When is the Lord's return? And how can it be said to be soon? When Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Peter's writing in the 60s of the first century, only 30 years after the Lord's resurrection and ascension to heaven. So how does Peter explain that the Lord has still not returned to earth, though he's writing only 20 years later than James? Well, says Peter, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Then he goes on to say that the Lord delays his return precisely to give the world... And all the people in the world, or whoever shall live in the world, the opportunity to be saved. Peter makes the point directly. Scoffers may doubt that the Lord will ever come, but, says Peter, you can be sure that the day of the Lord will come, and that when it comes, it will be just as and all that the Scripture has taught us it will be. Glorious salvation for the people of God utter catastrophe for the unsaved. This is the Bible's way of teaching us that the Lord's return may prove to be a long time in coming, but we have to be ready for it 
at any moment, nevertheless. We're to live our lives in the active expectation of Christ's coming again. In a fabulous passage that I knew I had to remember and write in my Bible as soon as I read it, Robert Candlish, the great 19th century Scottish preacher, I think perfectly captured the spirit of the Bible's teaching about both the imminence and the delay of the second coming in a sermon he entitled Christ Coming Quickly. I'm reading a long citation from that sermon, but it's worth your paying close attention. To a believer, the mere possibility or even absolute certainty of ages being yet to elapse before the Lord come again, comes again, ought no more to diminish the influence of that event upon his mind and heart and conscience than the fact of ages having elapsed since the Lord came at first lessens the moral weight of his constant vivid sight of Christ and him crucified. I know no chronology and no chronological computation of long eras in dealing with that Savior who 1,800 years ago trod with his blessed feet the soil of Judea and expired on the cross of Calvary. Then why should there be any real difficulty in applying this principle in the prospect more than in the retrospect? Does faith mounting up in the ascending series of years to the opening up of the fountain long centuries ago lose all sense of distance and remoteness in the bright and vivid apprehension of the cross? And will not the same faith in its keen glance downwards and onwards along the stream of time seize the one great and only object of its hope and bring it near even to the very door? I, though ages may seem to come between. These are the two events, the death of shame, the coming in glory, which faith, when rightly exercised, grasps, which I, believing, grasp. I grasp them as equally real, equally near. Christ dying, near and present. Christ coming, near and present. What though ages have run since that death, and ages more are perhaps to run before that coming. It's nothing to me. The world's history, past and future, the church's history, past and future, all is to me for the present, as if it never had been and never will be. Wherever I am, whatever I am about, ought I not to be alive to my position between these two manifestations of Christ and these alone? Behind me, Christ dying. Before me, Christ coming. Is it not thus and only thus that I live by the faith of him who loved me and gave himself for me, that I live also by the power of the world to come, enduring as seeing him who is invisible? I think Candlish is precisely right. Take the famous statement at the beginning of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's gone back to the very beginning of the world in his description of faithful people, his enumerating of faithful heroes in the previous chapter. Since, therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily besets us. 
and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you see what we are being urged to do? To keep our eye fixed on Jesus, both at the cross behind us, and sitting at the right hand above us. We're being urged to see those who lived in faith before us, now occupying the stands and cheering us on as we run our race. Time and the limitations of time have disappeared, and everything is now present in the eternal now. Everything is now for the Christian. I think Candlish's insight is very profound and an important way of summarizing the Bible's teaching and of the significance of the place of the Christian in what theologians call the interadventual period. That is the period between the first and the second comings of the Lord. And remember this, the very point James referenced to the prophets <coughs> calls to mind. The prophets and those who heard and believed their teaching did not have the Lord's first coming behind them to strengthen their faith in his second coming. They were waiting for the first coming of the Lord. They did not have the benefit that you and I have of the grand historical verification of the apostles' prophecies in the histories of, of the Lord, the history of the Lord's birth and his life and his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension. We have all of that behind us. And if that history unfolded as we read it in the New Testament record as it did, then surely nothing in all the world is as certain as the fact that he is coming again. Given that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today are all going to die and be in heaven before the Lord returns, at least that seems more likely than not, it doesn't really make any difference, does it, when the Lord returns? Whether a few years from now or still a thousand years or more from now. And how will time be experienced by the dead in Christ when their souls are in heaven? For them too will it be a thousand years is but a day. The reality of his coming again, the certainty of his coming again is the great point. A reality and a certainty. James wants us to live moment by moment, day after day. True enough, it wasn't helpful for the American Episcopal Book of Common Prayer to include a chart allowing worshipers to calculate the date of Easter as far ahead as A.D. 8500. That isn't the best way to help people live in the lively expectation of the Lord's return. On the other hand, it shouldn't be hard for any Christian to realize what an immense difference in perspective, in attitude, in approach it must make to consider the circumstances of our lives in any day, at any time, 
in light of the Lord's return. Certain things simply become utterly unimportant in such light. Things we get upset about or worry about, in many cases when held up against the prospect of the second coming, become laughably, ridiculously irrelevant. There's a story in my family. You know how stories like these get passed from generation to generation in a family. About my father and my mother. My mother used to love to tell this story. For some reason, I don't remember ever hearing my father tell it. They were traveling by car, and Dad was peeved because they left late and were behind schedule. Of course, I know how very rare that attitude is among men, how patient we almost always are with our wives when they hold us up and cause us to be late. But on this particular occasion, Dad was peeved. At one point, my mother interrupted the silence in the car and said that she would like to stop for a cup of coffee. That, of course, irked him all the more. They were already behind time. This would make matters only worse. But they stopped at a Stuckey's along the highway. He gassed up the car, and when he came into the store, there was Mother sitting at a table enjoying her cup of coffee. He asked her in a peevish tone how much the coffee had cost. 67 cents, she replied. 67 cents, he stormed. And at that moment, both of them realized how ridiculous this all was and burst into laughter. Nowadays in the Rayburn family, if anyone seems to be peeved about something utterly unimportant, we simply say, 67 cents? Well, James is saying something like that, only much more sublime. Someone has not been kind or nice or polite to you. Someone has forgotten to serve you in some way. Some minor inconvenience has interrupted your day. What do you say to yourself? How do you steady yourself as a Christian? Or as James puts it here in verse 8, how do you establish your heart? Well, you say not 67 cents, but the coming of the Lord is at hand, or the judge is standing at the door. That puts everything, anything, in an utterly different perspective. The unkind unbeliever is now not to be disliked or criticized, but sorrowfully pitied. As Richard Baxter reminds us in regard to the unbeliever, one hour in hell will burn out all the enjoyment that sin and unbelief ever brought to that human life. Can't you see him or her there, alone, terrified, in utter despair? Even the Christian whose behavior has irked you for some reason, is someday so deeply going to regret that he or she behaved in that way. And you know that. Such knowledge is responsibility. As you will regret so much of what you said and did, so will he or she. The judgment awaits you as it awaits others, as James sternly reminds us here in verse 9. 
Certainly that should produce in your heart some humility, some patience, some sympathy, some understanding, some willingness to forgive, to ignore the offense. And of course, since you too must stand in judgment for how you behave in this moment, how carefully you must respond. If the Lord's coming doesn't remind you of all of this, if it doesn't make a difference in how you think and how you behave, how in the world can you justify that? No Christian can. On the other hand, if you're suffering in some way, facing a challenge, experiencing some opposition, establish your heart by looking at the end of things. The second coming means not only that no trouble in this life is to be compared with the glories that will follow, but that your trials and tribulations have been transformed by that reality into opportunities to glorify God in more difficult circumstances. The more difficult the circumstance, the greater glory redounds to God when His people bear up under it with grace, with kindness, with humility, with a peaceable spirit. Last Lord's Day evening, Dan Nolte challenged us to live eschatologically, especially in the matter of joy. Every joy in life is increased, I think increased exponentially, when it is remembered that no matter how great, it is only a foretaste of a greater joy still to come. And that is the greatest part of its joy or of any joy. If joy is not immortal, if our happiest moments and experiences in life are nothing more than temporary, evanescent surges of feeling in the body, signifying nothing, promising nothing, pointing to nothing, then the joy we find in such experiences must be, to any thoughtful human being, severely diminished, if not extinguished by the recognition that this is the best we're ever going to feel and it will be gone in a moment. As Tennyson said of love and love's immortality and most of our happiest moments in life are times when we have felt most deliciously the power of love. Tennyson said of love's immortality, if it were not immortal, a blight would come on love. It would be, he said, half dead to know that it could die. Faith and love in Christian thought and life come very near to one another. They may be distinguished to some degree, but they cannot be separated. No one can love God and one another in truth without faith. And no one can truly believe who does not love which is why sometimes in the New Testament believers are described as those who have faith or trust in Jesus Christ and sometimes as those who love Christ. The ancient Christian mystics had a saying, Ubi amor, ibi oculus. Where love is, there is true sight or the true eye. That is, you see things as they really are when your heart is full of love. So it is with faith. 
which is loving belief, and in particular with faith in the second coming of the Lord. No one truly sees life as it is, understands what it means, who is not actively reckoning with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That reality changes everything, invests in everything a completely different and magnificently higher meaning and purpose. Let me conclude with a few pages from John Stott's wonderful book, The Incomparable Christ. In one section of that book, if you have read it, you know that he illustrates the various ways in which the Lord Jesus has influenced men and women through the ages. And in one short chapter of that section, he deals with Anthony Ashley Cooper, the famous Lord Shaftesbury of 19th century England. Born in 1801, he had an unhappy childhood, neglected and abused by his parents. His only solace was their housekeeper, Anna Maria Milles, who told him Bible stories, taught him to pray, and seems to have led him to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the age of 16, while at Harrow School, he saw a group of drunken men drop a poor man's coffin in the street, cursing and laughing as they did so. He was sickened and disturbed by the incident, later calling it the origin of my public career. For then and there he resolved to dedicate his life to the cause of the poor and the weak. He entered Parliament in 1826, aged only 25, and soon began his program of humanitarian reform, seeking to remedy some of the worst consequences of the Industrial Revolution. His unremitting labor continued for nearly 60 years, and the legislation for which he was largely responsible represents an astonishing achievement. In 1842, the Coal Mines Act prohibited underground work in mines and collieries by women and girls and reduced the hours worked by boys. In 1845, the Lunacy Act secured the humane treatment of the insane and appointed 15 commissioners in lunacy, of which he was one for 40 years. In 1847, 1850, and 1859, he piloted through Parliament the Ten Hours Factory Acts, which regulated working hours for women and children. He was the acknowledged leader of all this factory reform. In 1851, the Common Lodging House Act sought to end the unsanitary and overcrowded conditions of lodging houses, laid down acceptable standards, and permitted local authorities to inspect and supervise them. Even this list is far from complete. Ashley Cooper also founded the Ragged School Union and busied himself on behalf of boy chimney sweeps, flower girls, orphans, prostitutes, prisoners, handicapped people, and crippled children. Although his parliamentary bills were several times defeated, he refused to give up. I must persevere, his journal records. What motivated him? To begin with, he believed and loved the gospel. I am essentially and from deep-rooted conviction, he wrote in his diary, an evangelical of the evangelicals. This means that in particular he emphasized the divinity of Christ, his atoning sacrifice, and his coming kingdom. 
and his good works of love and justice were the natural outflow of his faith. During the 1830s, however, he became firmly and vitally convinced of the second coming of Christ. It entered into all his thoughts and feelings, wrote his biographer Edwin Hodder. It stimulated him in the midst of all of his labors. It gave tone and color to all his hopes for the future. For there is no real remedy, he often said, for all this mass of misery, but in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we not plead for it every time we hear the clock strike? I cannot tell you, Cooper once said to Hodder, his authorized biographer, how it was that this subject first took hold upon me. It has been, as far as I can remember, a subject to which I have always held tenaciously. Belief in it has been a moving principle in my life, for I see everything going on in the world subordinate to this one great event. It's not surprising, therefore, that Cooper's favorite text was the second from the last verse of the Bible. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. His lifelong diary to which he committed his private thoughts is sprinkled all through with his same expression of pent-up longing. It was a motto he had inscribed in Greek on the flaps of the envelopes he used every day. A few years before he died, he left instructions that Revelation 22.20 should be one of the three texts engraved on his tombstone. And on his deathbed, he kept muttering, Come, Lord Jesus. Anthony Ashley Cooper, 7th Earl of Shaftesbury, died in 1885. So richly had he deserved the epithet, the poor man's Earl, that tens of thousands of people from all walks of life lined the route taken by the cortege carrying his body from his home in Grosvenor Square to Westminster Abbey. There was a great outpouring of public grief, love, and respect. Representatives of the homes, asylums, schools, and societies that he had founded carried banners on which were emblazoned sentences from Matthew 25. I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came to me. Even the pouring rain could not dampen their spirits. My lords, explained the Duke of Argyle in a political speech delivered soon afterward. The social reforms of the past century have not been due to a political party. They have been due to the influence, the character, and the perseverance of one man. I refer, of course, to Lord Shaftesbury. The Times also acknowledged him as the man who changed the whole social condition of England. And why? What had been his incentive? He tells us. Toward the end of his life, he said, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. If the living prospect of Christ's return can change an entire society for the better, how much will it change your life and mine to reckon with it every day and every hour of the day. How differently must we view our problems? How much more carefully will we speak of and to others? How much more resolute will we prove to be in enduring our troubles, any opposition we face, remaining steadfast in our trials? 
That's what it means to live by faith. To behave as anyone ought to behave who knows that the Lord is near, standing at the door.